Deezer Originals. This is Defending in Numbers. Welcome everyone to Defending in Numbers, the podcast where we take a walk through the corridor of uncertainty, pretending to know a little more about football than we actually do. My name is Barnaby Slater. I'm covering for the holidaying Rob Armstrong this week and my guests helping to educate me about the world of stats and football this week are James Bench from the Evening Standard. How are you, James? I'm very well, thanks. I'll do my best to educate you. It would be an honour to be educated by you, sir. And uh, Mohammed Butt from Squawker. How are you, mate? I'm pretty great and, you know... Learning is learning is everything, you know. Oh, captain, my captain. We all watched Dead Poets Society. Uh, we, we've all watched Dead Poets Society, <laughs> but not since I was 13. Great <laughs> film, though, for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, obviously, for those of you listening who haven't already, please do subscribe to Defending in Numbers on Deezer, iTunes, and all your usual podcast providers. But let's get straight into it and our first feature, Week by Numbers. The Week by Numbers. Are you ready for this, guys? Absolutely. Just about. Just about. Okay, well, the first number I'm going to bring you is number 31. That was the number of passes before Fabian Delft's outrageous goal against Crystal Palace this weekend. Uh, City have now scored five, uh, more than five goals, in fact, in three consecutive Premier League games. Is that right? Is it five goals? Five or five or more? Five, six and five, yeah. I'm going to say that just in case once again. City have now scored five or more goals in three consecutive Premier League games. So the question I'm going to ask you is, has the Pep era finally landed and should Chelsea and all about them be worried, do you think? The Pep era it does look to have landed. The players seem to have the players from last season seem to have understood what Guardiola wants from them. They seem to have a better grasp of things. And more importantly, he signed some fullbacks. Yeah. So they actually he actually you know, fullbacks are so important to the way Guardiola plays football, the way, the way he the way he moves the ball from back to front. And and they didn't have fullbacks. Not, not, not only did they not have great fullbacks last season, they had terrible fullbacks. Like, it wasn't like they were just even six out of ten. They were ab- ab- abject, basically. They're horrible. How, like, did Ma- how did Man City as a club and uh, Pellegrini before the, before Pep let that get to that state just, of well, affairs? They just bought the Arsenal fullbacks from like a few <laughs> years ago. They're just like, oh, we'll have you now that you're out of contact, contract and 28, 29, 30. But it, I... It, 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 no one really asked the question because Cheeky Beristan's job was go and get Guardiola and he got Guardiola. But in terms of kind of doing transfer business, they're kind of a still almost in a position where they've got so many squad yeah. players that sort of 31, 32. Pep's just ostracised them and got some of them off the books. But, you know, players like Nasri Sanya, who eventually left last season, it was really bad squad management. And, and Pep's almost, as much as he gets kind of criticised for spending that money, he hasn't had much of a choice because he's had yeah. to rebuild an entire squad. Well, he said though, he said so. And that's why, I'm, that's why I think, yeah, the Pep here, it, it's not 100% here. I don't think it will be 100% here until he gets a controlling midfielder at the base of midfield. I think that's, you know, because you look at it, he had Busquets and then he had Lam and it worked as a, as a stopgap, then he had Jabby Alonso. Until he gets that kind of play, it's not going to be the 100% Pep era, but it's about, we're about 80% Pep right now. He's Eight. made he's made Fernandinho pretty good though. He has, he's improved Fernandinho a lot, but Fernandinho is still Fernandinho. He's, you know, if, if this was an ideal Pep team, Fernandinho would be the, the multi-purpose backup that will play like five positions and just be first go off the bench, really solid squad player. But, you know, because he doesn't have one, he's having to play Fernandinho. He'll have to play Yaya Toure in the second half of the season once, you know, the games start piling up. So, you know, we're about 85% Pep. Chelsea should be afraid, though, because 
um, City were outplaying them last last year until uh, De Bruyne's miss in that game, that first game. This season, they've got so many attacking weapons. Pep is, Pep is a better manager than Conte, so I would say Chelsea should be afraid, yeah. And just going back to what you were saying, uh, who should Pep be signing as that holding midfielder to, to finish off to finish off Sergio the project? Sergio Busquets. <laughs> really, just go back home. Just, I mean, there's no better midfielder in the world. Well, there isn't. That's that. He's right that, but you know, assuming Busquets won't leave Barcelona, although the state Barcelona are in, who the hell knows? Uh, you know, Julian Weigel's been mooted, but I like Rodri at Villarreal. He's a young player, uh, in the mold of Bruno Soriano, so he is a passing midfielder, but he's physically more capable. I think Weigel, for all his quality on the ball, and he has immense quality on the ball, I don't think he's defensively very strong. Uh, and I think he's physically, I don't think he's filled out his frame yet. He'd be a phenomenal. He's a project. Whereas I think Rodri would be able to immediately play, and he'd still have room to grow. Obviously, there's a lot of room to grow. He's not as good a player as Weigel, but as a prospect, as a you know, as a, he has more to his bow. He's six but he's a big guy he's physically well capable so I think he could be a phenomenal player under that I'd chuck Miralem Pjanic into the mix as well you might Ooh. you might have to work a bit on him because he's not a na- I mean he was basically an attacking midfielder at Roma but I have no doubt you could turn him into a really you know hit him David Silva Kevin De Bruyne it's Ooh. not it's not the most defensive of lineups but you'd never get the ball off you defend with if, the ball don't you if you score yeah. 10 every game I don't think it really matters no one's going to score 9 against you so just before we move on to our next number uh, obviously you've both agreed you think the Pep era is finally with us at Man City but for me there's a question to be asked which is he came out before and said he would never buy a, tr- a title. That's not the way that he likes to do. He likes to develop his youth players. Yeah. Does that matter that actually they've had to spend hundreds of millions of pounds to, to get to this point? I Yeah, it kind of does. It's not going to It's not going to be the same. But then again, you know, it's you're very rarely going to get a situation like at Barcelona where you have all these young players coming through. Even at Bayern, he didn't really do that because the Bayern youth system wasn't churning out these great young players. I mean, everyone looks at Kimmich, but they bought Kimmich. You know, he wasn't from their youth system. So... Uh, you know, the Bayern new system wasn't producing. Uh, you know, the City new system has a lot of talented youngsters in it. Jadon Sancho obviously has left, which I thought was a big loss to City. But they've got uh, Brahim Diaz, looks very good. Phil Foden, obviously very promising. And Tosin Darabioyo, you know, very good. Hard to see them breaking through though, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I think Darabioyo in particular has a good chance because they haven't really got a lot of centre-halves. Um, Phil Foden and Brahim Diaz, obviously it's harder for them given the position they're trying to break into, given the players in front of them. But yeah, it won't be the same if they, if, you know, if they win the title. But if they win the title and they play beautiful football which they are doing right now I think you couldn't really argue with anything it's adapting to the Premier League as well it's, it's mm, not like he's the yeah. only manager that isn't giving young players a chance I mean God, even Arsene Wenger is kind of slowly but surely abandoning a kind of belief in, in youth being the answer to everything like it just doesn't work in England in, 20, in 2017 Just it's not it's not a sustainable way to win the title okay let's move on to our next number and that is eight which is the number of penalties saved by Simon Mignolet uh, as many in the Premier League as Petr Cech Peter Schmeichel and Thibaut Courtois combined credit for that stat to Duncan Alexander at Oily Sailor uh, is he a one dimensional goalkeeper and if so, is there such a thing? Are we are we doing Mignolet a disservice here just to talk about his penalties? Or is it because he's making so many mistakes elsewhere that we're trying to find the only positive possible? Well, there's always been some goalkeepers that are just amazing penalty savers. I mean, he's he's very good. He's not even the best in the world. As we all know, it's Diego Alves at Valencia. Um, but I think a lot of it, he's going to save so many penalties because Liverpool keep conceding so many. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I was looking at it, I was like, Thibaut Courtois, how many penalties do I remember Thibaut Courtois facing? I mean, Chelsea might be getting players sent off left, right and centre, but... They're normally smart enough to not go careening in in the uh, in the area. Yeah, he's a, he's a really good shot stopper, isn't he? I think I think almost 
you do wonder if it's just you as a goalkeeper, you know, you know a penalty, you understand the kind of routine, you know what a player's gonna do. They're gonna strike you you either they either go bottom left or bottom right and you can save it, or if they go at the top, you're not gonna try and save it anyway. I do wonder if you're yeah. gonna try and save it, you're just you're not gonna try, you're to gonna save fail. It. Yeah. You're gonna fail. Um I do wonder, yeah. He's well, he's very good at, at close range as well. Yeah, I think Simon Mignolet is basically the anti Buffon. Right, because Gian Luigi Buffon is one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time. Really, really good organising his box, great coming for crosses, good good shot stopper as well. But he was rubbish at penalties, absolutely hopeless at them. No one knows why. He's a great goalkeeper. Why shouldn't he be good at them? He's not. He's rubbish. But Mignolet, you know, coming for crosses, the man flaps around like a, like a you know like he's on Angry Birds. You know, uh, <laughs> making saves. Okay, one minute he's pulling out unreal one-handed Gordon Banks diving saves. Next minute he stands there or you know dives the wrong way or completely gets fooled by a very simple shot. You know, that's something that is near post, for instance. You know, but you put him on, you put him on the goal line or you know off off the goal line as goalkeepers tend to be these days. Put a good striker 10, 10, 12 yards ahead of him, mate. He turns into like. Buffon, Yashin, Zoff, and Schmeichel combined. You know, he's yeah. like, it, it's incredible to watch, really. I, I've never seen, I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense because he's not even that good a shot stopper. You think, yeah, of course he's great at penalties. He's not like he's Iki Casillas or something. Mm. Like Casillas is, you know, or De Gea, they're miracle goalkeepers. So when they say penalties, you're like, yeah, of course they save penalties. Yeah. It, it, it's baffling, but, you know, you have to ha- ha- take your hat off to him. I mean, like James says, he is getting a lot of practice. Yeah. But, you know, fair play to him. I would say, um, to theorise, I've done a bit of goalkeeping in my time. From the way that uh, Mignolet tends to, like you are saying, have trouble with his positioning, his kind of uh, basic coming for crosses, it could be a pressure-based thing because when it's a penalty against you, there's no pressure on him whatsoever. It's just using his natural shot-stopping skills. Whereas when the pressure comes in of... You know, what's the score against you? How big is the striker coming for you when a cross has come for you, et cetera, et cetera? That might well be in his mind. Um, so less to think about, basically. Well, yeah, less to think about just using his his innate skills and ability. Uh, just to finish this one off, guys, if you had to name the top three uh, goalkeepers in the Premier League at the moment, would Mignolet be anywhere near that top three? N- not, wouldn't be in the top 33. <laughs> and, would, and there aren't 33. He, 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 wouldn't be in the, he wouldn't be in the top 10. I, you know, you look at top three is you know, David De Gea, unquestionably. Thibaut Courtois, pretty much unquestionably number two. And third choice... Lloris. Yeah, probably Hugo Lloris, even though he has he has big game issues. But then, you know, you've got other guys like Gomez, who's really underrated. Um, Petacek still has moments of brilliance, but he's it's clearly on the downslope, like pretty quickly on the downslope as well. Sergio Romero is a pretty good, you know, really good goalkeeper, despite being a backup. And... Um, yeah, Pitt Butland is is obviously destined for greatness, but he's not quite there yet. I mean, he's uh, not he's not the only one, but Mignolet is going to cost Liverpool enough points this season that I don't see them putting together a credible title challenge. I actually don't see them finishing in the top four with that defence. Okay, well there you go. Let's move on to our next number, which is thirty eight. That is the number of teams that have won fewer Premier League games in history than Gareth. Barry, most notably Southampton and <laughs> Sunderland. Amazing. I assume that's just notably because they begin with S. Uh, the uh, West Brom stalwart broke the record for appearances in the division against Arsenal on Monday. Uh, I watched Monday Night Football uh, and uh, Thierry Henry and Jamie Carragher raving about how difficult it is to have played that number of games, particularly in the engine room. Uh, is Gareth Barry underrated, do you think, as a player? No. I no. think <laughs> He's rated as what he is, which is... Uh, look, the reason he's played that many games in the engine room of the midfield is because he's never... I mean, with the exception of those few years at Man City, he's never played for a top club. And you could even argue Man City weren't a top club when he played for them. He won a league there, I think. He, he won a league, yeah. but that was the, the flukiest league ever so you know they won it on goal difference because they beat 
the worst, one of the worst teams in the division on the last day. I'm going I'm to throw it out here. I think he's been so consistently described as underrated that he is overrated. <laughs> um, in a kind of Lee Carsley way. I don't, and I think that's... In some ways, though, that actually, to me, makes it all the more impressive that he's done what he's done because he's so consistently, for years, been... You know, wherever he's gone... There were certainly... There were times at Villa, and I remember as a young kid growing up in the area, like Gareth Barry was a bit of a flying winger and a really good player. But what he's done is he's morphed himself into a player that rarely gives you below a six out of ten, rarely gives you much above a seven or an eight on good days. In some ways, it's, it, it makes it more impressive because he's not that he's not like being a Ryan Giggs that was a bla- a blazing talent and one of the best players in the world for years, like Totti as well. He's just done it by constantly being good. Um, and I, I was I was there on Monday and he was really good again. He was actually better than anyone in the Arsenal midfield. Not that that's saying much. He was, of course, Fabio Capello's uh, defensive midfielder during his ill-fated time with England. Does that say more about the fact that we didn't have many great defensive midfielders or did Capello see something there that you guys don't see? Fabio Capello played Emerson a lot. So, I mean, that just says more about Fabio Capello than than anything else, I think. He he likes a plodder. Okay, James? Yeah, I, I think... Unfortunately, well, he was injured, wasn't he, in 2010? And he'll yeah. always be tired with a brush of like, he was just way too, way too slow. And I think everyone in England got their eyes kind of bursted open by Ozil and Podolski. Yeah. And then we had Gareth Barry doing his best. And that's such an English way of kind of like, he's powering through an ankle injury or whatever it was. He's trying really hard, but he's <laughs> just not, not. Just not quite good, good enough. enough. Uh, okay, 83.3%. That is the number of goals scored for Chelsea this season by a Spaniard. Uh, Alvaro Morata has admittedly bagged six of them, but Alonso, Fabregas and Pedro have also chipped in. Uh, interestingly, another Spaniard, Aspilicueta, has four assists, all of which are for Morata. Is there anything in this percentage? Have they just got the best Spanish players around or are the Spaniards only passing to each other and scoring themselves? <laughs> I think it's mostly their superstar number nine is a Spaniard. Yeah. And that then their goal-scoring attacking midfielder is a Spaniard and then their gigantic goal-scoring left winger is a Spaniard. They just happen to have like three of their top four scoring options are Spanish. Yeah. Has, has Morata surprised you guys how well he settled into the Premier League? Um, yeah, I was. I, I know he's a very good player. I, I'll admit I don't, didn't watch Real Madrid week in, week out, but you, you still expect that that kind of number nine starting role on a very good team will take a little while to set in, settle into, particularly because he's not had Eden Hazard there creating chances for him. He's kind of, he's really had to do a lot of it his own. That hat, that hat trick against Stoke, what was so impressive about it was, I mean, as we've noted there, as Piliqueta's getting the assist, not Willian or Pedro, Um He's he's really really impressed me. I mean, there'll be plenty of debate about who's the best number nine in the league, but just in terms of like taking my expectations and, and going miles beyond them, Morata's been fantastic. Well, I mean, without wanting to sound too smug, I did. I saw. I said this was going to happen. I, exactly when when they signed him, I was. I said this is the one. The reason why United went for, in my opinion, went for Lukaku ahead of Morata was purely because uh, safety. They knew Romelu Lukaku could do it in the Premier League, could do it over 38 games. They'd seen it happen. No one has ever literally seen Morata be the starting striker in a team. And it was, you know, they'd seen him play well for spurts. They'd seen him dominate big games, as he has done for Real Madrid and Juventus, scoring in big games, Champions League semi-finals, the final. Last goal for Juve was in the Coppa Italia, last minute of extra time. The man lives for big games. Everyone knew this, but... Can he do it week in, week out? That was a gamble. And I think it would be with the prices being talked about, I think United would rather go, went rather for the safe option. Chelsea wanted the same, same thing as well. Mm-hmm. So then they had to go from Rata as a backup. 
But yeah, no, he's more than proven he could do it. It was always just a matter of give him the chance and he would prove it. And with, with Zappa Costa yet to come in and Azard yet to come in, he'll, he'll keep scoring a lot of goals. He's been phenomenal. Yeah, and Chelsea have had a decent start, actually, despite, uh, you know, a crazy first day. Not a, not a particularly brutal fixture list, though. It's worth noting. I think co- kind of compared to... Not as easy as Man United, though. Don't play no, anyone to I think, Well, actually, I think one of the interesting things that's, that, that no one's really looked at is that top three have all kind of really benefited from slightly easier starts than Spurs, Liverpool and Arsenal. Um, but yeah, they're really getting places. I think the, the joy of, of what Conte's got there, and I, I don't know how well it will fare against really top quality opposition in Europe, and I'm really looking forward to finding out kind of in the Champions League just how well he fares. But it's quite a... It's quite a basic system. Uh, as it, it's not really that hard to get your head around. We've got two super mobile midfielders that will shield and get the get the ball out to a, basically a front five wing backs and that front three. It's it's pretty easy to adapt to if you're a new player because Bakayoko has also come in and done really well so far. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'll be intriguing to see when the games hit thin and fast. I still have real doubts about their squad depth in key areas. Marcus Alonso gets injured. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Marcus Alonso gets injured. I mean, and you know they've got Zappa Costa, Moses on the right, but that's it really. And, and creative wise, I mean they've actually done well to adapt for Azad. But in the middle is where I, where they really have a problem because their backups for Bakayoko and Kante are Drinkwater and Sesk, who are basically different, slightly different versions of the same player. Uh, and neither of them are anything like Bakayoko and Kante. And that, that athleticism, as we've seen before, is key for the way Chelsea play in the middle of the park that ability to not only just be athletic sorry but to also read the game and to, to know where and when to intercept them back Yoko is excellent at carrying the ball forward and then starting attacks that way he's not really a passer per se but it's I'm, I'm, I agree with James it's going to be very interesting I don't think they've got what it takes necessarily to fight the European elite because there is a lot of space behind their midfield even though they try and play very compact the way Kante has played whenever Kante has played an elite op- elite opponent he's looked absolutely out of his depth okay. like when he for France playing against Spain Busquets and Iniesta ran rings around him whenever um uh, Juve, whenever Chelsea played anyone in preseason, he looked completely like he had, no, like he couldn't keep up with the pace of it, you know. And I think that's going to be a problem because he is, he's a great, great tackler. But the thing is, when what, when you're that kind of player and you push forward to tackle constantly, you leave spaces behind you. And mm-hmm. Bakayoko is kind of similar to Kante in that he likes to step forward and tackle. And of course, what he had at um, at Monaco was Fabinho, who would sit deeper. And what Kante had was Matic who would sit deeper so it's going to be interesting to see how they both adapt to playing together Okay, one word answers from you both will Chelsea win anything this season no No, well maybe a cup not the big two FA Cup fancy the FA Cup I think they're really good at steamrollering average up that's why they won the league last year they steamrolled every team that wasn't quite good enough and then you know they kind of split the points with the rest of them but yeah, Kante's two worst games for Chelsea have been against Arsenal. But, uh, but, but you know, <laughs> just, but just I thought you said he had problems against top quality opposition. Oh, oh dear. Just uh, now all finding out that I'm a Spurs fan. There uh, you go. Uh, five is the number of months that Arik Milik will be out after tearing his ACL. He'd only just come back from tearing his ACL in his other knee in October 2016. After Napoli's amazing start to the season, this is, of course, a terrible note to talk about but a good opportunity for us to talk about Napoli's start to the season I, they're incredible and I mean you know it's such a sad thing for it to but for Milik's injury Milik's injury has been it's horrible to say but it's been a blessing in disguise for Napoli because it forced uh, Sally to put Dries Mertens in attack and that's just transformed them they went from being okay yeah they're pretty good to oh my god they're amazing they're, they're probably the best team to watch in Europe right now uh, their, their fluid, the fluidity and movement in their front three is unreal. Mertens is playing the game, the football of his life. I've never seen him play 
I mean, good Lord, he's, he's literally one of the most exciting players to watch in Europe. They're just phenomenal to watch. Uh, it's a shame to lose Milik because I think even if nothing else, he would have been an incredible plan B. And it's really horrible for him to do it, to do his ACL again. It's a, diff- a different knee, I suppose. It, I don't know if that makes it worse or better, actually. I think it probably makes it worse. Because, you know, but it's you feel for him. You really do. And I hope he comes back and comes back in good health and is able to contribute for Napoli as a, as a plan B. But, I mean, yeah, Napoli... Um, Napoli are just their, their plan A right now is just outrageously yeah. good. James, can they go all the way though this season? Um, yeah, I think they can certainly win Syria. Yeah. Um, Juventus don't look like they've been quite as hardly hit as as you thought they might have been. You know, kind of lo- losing players like Dani Alves, they look like they can ride that storm. But I mean, we said it at the start of the season, Syria is is really exciting. Just back on Milik. Um, I, th- I just want to say it's, it's so incredibly sad because doing the other ACL as well, I think that's really going to rob him of a lot of the gifts he had. He was quite explosive in the kind of five yards in behind a defender. It was a fantastic finisher as well and hopefully he won't lose that. Um, I, I, rem- I actually once was lucky enough to talk to um, the Napoli owner Aurelio De Laurentiis about Milik and he was this was just after they signed him to replace Higuain and he was absolutely raving about him and kind of he was saying to me he's as good a striker as Higuain and I think if he'd had the time I mean, he's, he was so good when he arrived. I think he could have gone on to prove himself to be as good as Higuain. If you've done both your ACLs, um, I mean, you know, of course, medical technology has come on leaps and bounds even in the last 10 years, but it's going to rob him of so much of what would have made him a great football. He'd be, you know, if he was still there, this summer would be the one where he was would be getting a massive transfer to England. Yeah, no, I mean, you look at, I mean, you're right about the ACL. You look at Falcao after he did his ACL before the World Cup and he went to Man United, he was awful. Went to Chelsea, was awful. And everyone's like, okay, this this is two years it took him to get over one ACL. It was like his third or fourth ACL injury in his career, but he looked terrible for like two years. And then suddenly, because he went back to Monaco and he played more again, it so now he looks amazing again. Yeah. Because it just takes, it's, you can heal from an ACL and be fit to play, but you'll never, you won't be 100% until like at least a year, sometimes in Falcao's case too, a year after the injury. So that's that's the sad thing for Milik here is that, he, you know, okay, sure, once his his um, his his first ACL that he did might actually start healing by the time he's back from his second one, but then he's got to heal his second one as well. It's- yeah, I can't think of too many footballers who've suffered them in both knees uh, and really come back to top level anyway, certainly. Um, but yeah. Get well soon, Eric Millick. That is the end of our first feature week by number. So let's move on to I'm embarrassed to ask because I don't know myself. I'm embarrassed to ask. This is where I ask you guys about a topic that, frankly, I know very little about myself. And you can tell me so I can let all my mates know in the pub how knowledgeable I am. So this <laughs> one is relevant because last week Real Madrid renewed the contracts for Danny Carvajal, Karim Benzema and Marcus Asensio, uh, as well as Marcello and Marcus Lorente. This team now have release clauses combining to over 7 billion euros. But why do players in Spain always have such ridiculous release clauses? Educate I, me. It, it, it began in 1985 before the Bosman rule. Essentially, the clausura de recesión It's essentially a way for players it's a way to protect players basically if they want to get out of their contract they can they they take the uh, the fee that they have to pay this cl- this clause to terminate their contract and they, they pay it to the spanish league office and then they, they're free to go they're free to be they're, they're uh-huh. free to move they're free agents and of course what it became was essentially a way to buy a player that a club didn't want to sell you know you, you just pay you what you do is you give the player the money the player then pays it off and that you know and it's it you know it's um yeah, it's, it's a way for players to essentially tr- control their own destiny. You know, if you really want to leave a club, you can uh, you can get the get your get your 
your suitors to pay the buyer. And that's, of course, that's what happened with Neymar. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't uh, technically Barca didn't give, um, Pichy didn't give Barca the money. They gave it to Neymar and Neymar paid it, which of course is what made the deal so shady because why did PSG have literally 220 million in just one lump sum lying around somewhere? Yeah. It's, uh, and, and why didn't Neymar just run off with it? Well, of- I mean, good Lord. Yeah, exactly. You know, we paid it in, you know, but this is, this is alleged they got around that FFP by do it by saying that by hiring Neymar, Qatar hired Neymar to be representative for the World Cup. Yeah. So that's how they got, but you know, it's, it's a very dodgy thing. Teams don't tend to like to activate the release clause unless it's a really important thing yeah. because it is it is seen like a hostile takeover. It all you know? sounds a bit Western Union money transfer to me. <laughs> um, it's quite it's quite dodgy, but it's really quite common in Spain. Actually, I think uh, it's certainly not just football. It's quite widely enshrined sh- uh, in Spanish employment law that uh, you know that you are you could, should theoretically be able to buy your way out of a contract. Any company that you work at. Um, another thing to point out about this, because there's been some crazy big ones like Neymar, but there have also been some crazy cheap ones. Like I think Sandro M- Ramirez went to Everton. He I mean, might not be that good, but for £8 yeah. million, pounds, it was a bit of a snip. Danny Carver, how? Danny oh, no, Car- no, sorry, not Danny Carver. Danny, um, Danny Ceballos. Yeah, Danny Ceballos as well went to Real Madrid for next to nothing. Um, a lot of that is because it's linked to players' wages. So someone like Sandro or Ceballos would have been on, I guess, top of my head, sort of not much more than 25, 30 grand a week. So you. You can't actually raise their release clause too high. Um, mm. It's a, it's against the rules, and the player could theoretically um, could theoretically appeal to Spanish courts and say my release clause is too high based on what they're paying me. But there's loads of fun stories about this. I think it was Bilbao do it, but they do it with such resentment, kind of accepting um, release clauses. The one with Javi Martinez to to uh, Bayern Munich, they got the. Cat the check through, but they basically just refused to cash the check. Yeah, the, right. we're, the we're, money's here, but we're not taking yeah, we're, yeah, it. Athletic really sticked to guns. They said, "Look, if you want to buy our play, we don't want to send pay the buyout clause and get out of here, get out of town." And you know, with having Martinez, they just said, "No, we're not paying you. We're not." We're not and like with with your rent, you rentals tried to buy your rent, and they're like, "No, we're not taking your money." Yeah. So they had to then wait a year and buy them on a free because with the having Martinez thing, it took all summer. They need lawyers, and then eventually, right at the end of the summer, they paid it and they locked having Martinez out. There's a famous story. He had to sneak back in. Uh, to get his things from the locker room and to right. jump over the fence. You know, it's comical. I think the reason um, Real Madrid has such big buyout clauses is because, you know, everyone everyone assumed that it was just like sort of for show when they gave Cristiano a one billion buyout clause. Yeah. And it was just, oh, look at look at how big we are. I think Benzema's got a billion yeah, now Benzema as well. Benzema now has one. I think Bale has one as well. And I think it's just, you know, we all, it, it was easy to laugh at Madrid. But as you saw with PSG, it actually, in this current market, it makes sense. You know, if the players are happy to take a buyout clause like that, you know, because they're thinking I'm yeah. never actually going to want to leave Real Madrid. Then, I, you know, I don't know why Barcelona set their buyout clauses at, at sane values now. As, as soon as the Neymar thing happened, they should have been upping, yeah. re- renewing everyone's contracts with, new, with big buyout clauses because... Right now, you could get, you know, in this current market, you want, if you want to buy Messi, it's 400 million euros. I mean... Yeah, that yeah. seems doable. Um, yeah. And that, of course, uh, the Ander Herrera story initially when uh, two two people turned up claiming to be paying the bike laws. Isn't that right? I think that's just... A lot of that is the wonders of Athletic's refusal to do business coupled <laughs> with Man United at that time, their, their rank incapability yeah. to actually do transfer business. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Ed Woodward, basically. Yeah, but basically Ed Woodward didn't know buyout clauses and ended up with Man Marouane Fellaini, which maybe he's got, I've got Herrera as well. So maybe yeah, it all could all work out it. in the end. Guys, thank you so much for telling me all about Spanish release clauses. Could you ever see that actually happening in Britain? I'm not sure if that would really it, fly. It, I, th- I think it, because it, like, like James says, it actually was a whole part of Spanish employment law. So I don't, unless they decided to make it into, into you can't just have it for football alone. It would probably be deemed, you know, against the rules or something or like restricting freedom of movement or something. I don't think they'll adopt it. 
Okay, gonna move on to the next section, which is who's this fella? Who's this fella? And this week it is Peter Bosch. That's his. That's how to pronounce his name. Yeah, yes. Peter Bosch. Peter Bosch. I, I, like, I like the sound of Peter Bosch a bit more. Of course, he's the Dortmund manager. Dortmund are top of the league, having won five out of six games in the Bundesliga. They've scored 19 goals and conceded just one. During the summer, they lost supposed star winger, the now injured Usman Dembele, and of course, almost lost Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. So they're doing incredibly well considering they've lost Dembele. But if Thomas Tuchel was Jurgen Klopp Mark II, who or what is Peter Bosch? Uh, he's kind of like a weird hybrid of Van Halen Cruyff. Uh, okay. You know, he, he grew up in, 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 he was a defensive midfielder, was a destroyer. He, he didn't, wasn't really part of the Amsterdam school, uh, uh, you know, the Ajax scene as it were, but he admired it and he's come to sort of take bits from it. You know, he's kind of like, uh, in a way, he's kind of like Guardiola and he's not fully Cruyff, he's not fully Van Hal. he's kind of a blend of the two. Uh, you know, he emphasises... You know, building out from the back, all the classic stuff, you know, passing with the back, the goalkeeper has to be able to play. You want, you want to build out the back, you use, use the flanks to move. 4-3-3 is the default formation. Alternative is 3-3, um, <clears throat> 3-4-3 diamond, you know, with a diamond in midfield. Yeah, there's a lot of Corifus stuff to me. He emphasizes counter-pressing. I want to start the, start the attacks from the back, from the front, sorry. Start defending from the front, start attacks from the back. You know, uh, a lot of uh, emphasis on moving the ball, ball movement, uh, movement off the ball. Spacing is very important. Right. You saw with Ajax, very, what's very important is the way that they space the field. They, net, they they were compact when they didn't have the ball when they wanted to win it back when they did have the ball they spread out wide Nuri uh, and, and uh, Bertrand Traore went wide um, uh, Eunice sorry went wide as well you know they made they made use of width okay and James uh, from your point of view uh, obviously it's a big pressure job there and he's done it and made a great start but also in the Champions League uh, fell away at Spurs at Wembley 3-1 was that just uh, I mean they played very well that night but uh, was that kind of just a, a, a surprise loss and, and they'll get over it and get through the group? What do you think? A lot of it is they, compared to like a, a relatively elite outfield, they've got a pretty rubbish goalkeeper in um, Roman Berkey, but they're, they're, yeah, their strike force is absolutely fantastic and um agree with everything that Mo said. There's also um, a little bit of a sort of Bielsa, Sam Pauli, explosive attacking you know, relentless energy that makes you think, oh, I don't know how this lot are going to fare in January and February. It might be that the Bundesliga winter break really helps um, Bosch's team kind of settle and get their energy back because they just play 100 miles an hour. What Spurs did so well against them was they just went, uh, oh, all right, you lot can play as fast as you want. We're just going to sit here Mm. and pick you off on the counter because we've got, you know, an incredible goal scorer. We'll take our chances Hope you don't take yours. And I mean, Spurs were still incredibly lucky. Aubameyang should have been given a goal for that brilliant volley. Oh, a brilliant goal. Yeah. He's, yeah. And he's still such a good striker. No matter how much they try and hawk him and get rid of him, he's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I think Peter Bosch reserved judgment and he's probably not going to win the Bundesliga, but looks like a very smart appointment. I think they've got a good chance to win the Bundesliga, actually, just because I think Bayern Munich seem to be imploding under Carlo Ancelotti as, you know, it shouldn't really be a surprise. Mm. No one except Frank Ribery has gotten better under Carlo and that's only because Frank Ribery's not injured all the time. But I think Bayern, I think Dortmund have a good chance. He's more, he's more pep than Klopp um, Bosch in, and I in think what way? It, well, yeah it just I mean everything I said you know he moves the ball both the moments to midfield man it's, management as well do you I, mean? Ooh, I don't know about that I mean he trusts youth, youth kind of like both managers do but I don't think he's got that sort of rabid intensity that Klopp has and, but he's not quite as, as exacting and demanding as Pep Guardiola is I don't think he, he's but you know he he's um he's waited for his chance obviously he jumped ship from uh to uh, to Dortmund at the first chance and he lost lost Dembele obviously but he trusts young players 
players. He he really uses goal scoring wingers. You saw, I mean, Maxim Maxim Melian Philippe has what four goals in the last two last two home games. You know, so he's he's doing the business. Yarmolenko looked good at Wembley as Yama well. Yarmolenko looked say. very good. We talked about getting a big move for a long time, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, got he settled in very quickly to replace Dembele. But the problem they're going to have is just the fact that you know uh, what, what can you do about Roman Berkey? He, you know, he, those two goals that Kane and Son scored, but just he, how did he let those in? It's awful weak goalkeeping, and against and they're playing Real Madrid tonight, so Cristiano Ronaldo is going to be letting fly from everywhere. And if he has even a half decent night, I mean, Dortmund are in trouble basically. And I think this goes out after that game, in fact. So uh, you guys at home will oh, know a bit well. more about it than we will. There you uh, go. Just finally, finally on uh, Dortmund and Peter Bosch, is this, uh, you know, like you said, he he made the move straight away when he got mm. the first chance from Ajax. Is this another stepping stone for him, do you think, Dortmund, James? Uh, Dortmund are the ultimate stepping stone club at the moment for the players. <laughs> for, you know, And it's there, there are very few clubs now that kind of guarantee you that step up to either a top four Premier League team or Real Madrid or Barcelona where you can earn mega money or manage the best teams. I don't really see... Bosch as one of those coaches but if he sees himself as that Dortmund is the place you go if he does well uh, over the next two years I would be shocked if he's not in the frame to succeed Arsene Wenger if Arsene Wenger ever goes I was thinking more Conte because Conte's come out this week and said uh, that he sees himself going back to Italy sooner rather than later. I, you know, who knows what Chelsea are planned? Chelsea, Chelsea rotate managers like, well, like you know, kebab shots rotate chickens. So um, they'll be, uh, they'll, they'll have, they'll have some plans. Thomas Tuchel is on the market. Remember, you know, the ultimate optimist, the hyper Wenger. What so, happened with Thomas Tuchel? Because he was excellent when, uh, when I saw Borussia Dortmund at the Westfalen Stadium. A couple I, th- years I ago. think he, he's just, he's so attacking. Like the amount, of, the amount of the amount he exposes his defense is. Just I mean, if Klopp does it like seven out of ten times, Tuchel does it ten times out of ten. Like he plays so open, so attacking, and it's great fun to watch. But it just means it, it's very hard for them to defend. Uh, if you know, if a team is anything like any anywhere near clinical enough, they can get cut to ribbons. I assume Tuchel is either being very picky or the, there are the Premier League teams. I, mean, I, I think if Arsenal had gone for him in the summer, if Arsenal had you pulled the trigger on Wenger and gone for Tuchel, I think he would have jumped at the chance. I just think there's not, there's no massive. I mean, he's not going to go to Everton, is he? Let's be honest, or West Ham or something like that. That's beneath him. So, with the greatest respect, you know. So I think he's waiting for the right opportunity. And I think he'll get it. Okay, and James, just before we uh, end the Who's This Fella segment, Dortmund this season in the Champions League. How far can they go? Uh, they can go to the Europa League. <laughs> Stay in the Europa League. They've, they've lost below to Spurs. Um, I don't necessarily think it's decided yet. Um, but I think Spurs had a massive advantage in having the first of that kind of basically playoff for second place at home. Um, Spurs, you know, Pochettino is more than capable of uh, going to the Westland Stadion and just going, yeah, I'm going to defend for a, a nil-nil or mm. a one-all one draw. Um, he'd be mad not to. And then, you know, can I see them getting any points off Real Madrid? Probably not. So they've almost it's almost kind of dead before it began, unless Apoel do something mental. Okay, moving into our final segment, which is the Stats Showdown. Stats Showdown. Both of our guests have three stats each with which to try and marvel me. I will be giving out one point for each round of stats, for the winner of each round of stats, and it's the first person to get to two points. Best of three, basically, guys. Uh, That's how going to work. I'm going to come to you, James, first for your first stat. Remember, you're not just trying to impress me, mate. You're trying to impress the audience at home as well. Get statty. 
Well, I've never really impressed an audience before, so uh, no time to shine like the present. Uh, and I'm going to start with a man who always shines, Mr. Cesc Fabregas, okay. uh, Chelsea's creative hub, but a guy that half the time doesn't actually play for them, which I think makes this stat all the more remarkable. Cesc Fabregas has completed the most passes in four of the eight seasons he's played in the Premier League in which passes have officially been counted by Opta. He also holds the record for most passes complete in a single Premier League season. That's 2,829. That's probably a Sunderland season. (laughs) That is very Cesc Fabregas related, which uh, if you'd known that I was a big Spurs fan, you'd realise would be very difficult to win with, but... It's a, a gamble. Good, in it's terms gamble. of stats and uh, as, Wait a player, see my next one. as a player, I do love uh, a quarterback and a good passer. And Cesc Fabregas is certainly one of those. In fact, I'd say I'd go so far as to say he's really surprised me that he's still been at Chelsea the last season uh, and a half because I thought his career there had basically ended. I thought his legs had gone. Uh, but uh, he's still he's still doing incredibly well, I think. Um, Mohamed, can yeah. you beat that stat, mate? I, I can try, mate. I can say I would say this is another another passing based stat, almost sort of. It's about possession. Man City uh, this season are averaging sixty three percent possession this season. If they maintain that, it would be a new that's average possession over all the games so far. If they maintain that, it would be a new Premier League record for possession in a season since records began. Nobody actually in, since records began have even gone above sixty percent. So they would be way out of the competition if they keep this up. Do you have the yeah. previous record or the current record for highest uh, percentage pass? Oh, well, that for me has handed Ching. the victory to James. He had a little bit more depth in his stats knowledge. It was four out of eight seasons. He gave us the actual thousands of passes that were given. That is one nil to James Mohammed. You get to start the second round with your second stat. You're one nil down. It's like we're playing the final round of Pointless, one of my favourite game shows. You've got to score this point to stay okay. in the game. All right, here we go. Man United have never lost a Premier League game to Crystal Palace. That's the highest win percentage of any current Premier League opponent, 81.3%. Crystal Palace, in all the games against United, have only ever scored five goals. Really? In that time. How many games is that? It's a lot of games. That is a lot of <laughs> games. And Mohammed's backup stats not really helping him here. Uh, okay, James. So he's gone for Man United. They've never lost against Crystal Palace. And Crystal Palace have only scored five goals in that time. Let's think about it. So 1992 was the first year of the Premier League season. Palace have probably been in it, I'd say. Oh, two, 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 so that's about 17 years. They've probably been in it, let's say, 13 years. You know, that's quite a lot of games to have only scored five mm, goals. Okay, James, what have you got for us? I don't think you're going to like this stat at all. <laughs> I'm certain you won't. Is it, is it just that Spurs are very Spursy? <laughs> Since the 2013-14 season began, no Premier League team has lost fewer home games than Arsenal at eight, which I actually could not believe because they're quite often rubbish at home. See last, uh, see Since Monday when, night. sorry? Since the start of the 2013-14 season. Was that the first season they went into the Emirates? No, that no. was 2006-07. Oh, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. So since the 2013-14 season, no Premier League team has lost fewer home games than Arsenal, eight. Chelsea have lost nine. Liverpool have lost 11. Man United have lost 13. And Spurs have lost 15. Yeah, you don't like the Spurs. You don't like well, the anti Spurs. That doesn't surprise me because before last season, Spurs. Well, before Pochettino, basically, Spurs were very hit and miss at home. Um, I think the Palace one had more depth in that one, and also I'm a keen fan of the jeopardy going through to the last round <laughs> of points. So that one goes to Mahoud. Uh That's quite amazing. I think the idea that Palace have only scored five times against Man United I, in the, all those seasons. I mean, you know, when you consider that you know the Fergie era basically began with that FA Cup win over Palace in the final in '91, and like since then, it was '92, wasn't it? 
Lee Martin scored the yeah, winner. Yeah, so 1991 was the Cup Winners' Cup final. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, you think about it and it's just, yeah, it's incredible, really, how, how one club can just but be so also, bad. I think, because Man United, such an attacking team under Fergie as well, they, they, they weren't afraid to concede a few. Remember the six they conceded against Southampton, the five against Newcastle? You know, I'm surprised Palace didn't score more. What do you think, James? Well, I think particularly because... Palace, even last season, but so often they've been so good at kind of spoiling the party for big teams. I mean, I yeah. sit next to a Palace supporter in the office <laughs> and I, not a week goes by in which I don't hear the word Cristanbal, uh, which isn't a thing. Um, Cristanbal? Yeah, Cristanbal. When, when they 3-3 three, three against uh, Liverpool. Oh, yes, when that's right. When the Brendan went for loads more goals. That's right. Um, yeah, and in theory, they should be the perfect team to play against any top team because they've got pace on the wings. They've got... a. Uh, Target man striker who actually is a little bit rubbish, but still Ben Teke has his games. Um, and generally, at least quite a lot of numbers in defence. So they should be better at playing against teams like Man United than they are. But um, leads, leads me on to another one, one, uh, one word answer. Can Hodgson get them out of trouble this season? James. Well, I was on the Squawker Talker recently. And this one word answer thing isn't going very well, is it? <laughs> I, well, I carelessly predicted they'd get two to four points from the games against two Manchester teams and Chelsea. I'm going to stand by that and I'm going to stand by them staying up. Okay, Mohamed? No. He says no. Okay, it's one all going into the last uh, round of Stats Showdown. James, you have the honour. Uh, my stat is about the greatest Premier League game, the ultimate Premier League game. 4-3. Newcastle versus Liverpool, yeah. the king of Premier League games. And I promise you, I can promise you another good one this weekend because it has been 68 games since Newcastle and Liverpool played out a nil-nil draw. That was back in 1974. On average, just 8.1% of their games end nil-nil. No, sorry, on average, God, I've got that stat wrong there. On average, 8.1% of football games end nil-nil. The record for this game is just 1.5%. It's a guarantee of goals. Oh, wow. That for all you gamblers out there, you get your both teams to score on. That's good. So what do you say? 68, 68 games since a nil-nil? Since a nil-nil. Okay. Mohamed, that's a good one. And obviously beautifully relevant for this weekend's I, game. I can beat it. Oh, I he's confident. I can beat it. Oh, nobody likes smug. If Harry Kane scores Premier League goals at the same rate he has so far... He w- it will take him just 379 games, 379 appearances to beat Alan Shearer's record. He could even have it sewn up before his 34th birthday. Do you know what? I, Spurs, what I'm worried about here is that having found out that I'm a Spurs fan during this podcast, he has blatantly Googled I, a stat. Th- th- I had this stat uh, prepared beforehand. Uh, it is a good one, but I'm going to go for the one more relevant to this weekend's games. Uh, James, you have won that yes! one 2-1. It was hard for me to go against Harry Kane, but I have to at least try and remain neutral as the host of <laughs> this wonderful Defending in Numbers podcast. Uh, guys, that brings us to our conclusion. Thank you so much uh, for coming in this week. Please uh, let us know know where people can find you James on social media uh, at James Benge on Twitter B-E-N-G-E B-E-N-G-E and Mohammed at Mohammed Bart on social media on Twitter Facebook you know all the good places make sure to check them out you can find me on Twitter at Barnaby Slater guys don't forget of course to subscribe to Defending in Numbers on Deezer iTunes and all your usual podcast providers if you haven't already if you have already thank you so much for supporting us and keep on listening we'll be back once again for Defending in Numbers next week <laughs> Defending in Numbers is a Deezer Originals production. You can find and download more episodes on Deezer and all major podcast providers. Defending in Numbers.